0: So, welcome to another episode of Chicana Code Switchers. And this week uh, we have a new guest. Her name is Dr. Yvette Martinez Vu. She uses she, her pronouns, and she is currently an academic coach, author, and speaker. So, Dr. Yvette Martinez Vu is a Chicana mother scholar, academic coach, and host of the Grad School Femturing Podcast, where she empowers first-generation students of color as they navigate higher education. She has a PhD in theater and performance studies from UCLA. Dr. Martinez Vu um, specializes in supporting those who, like her, are neurodivergent and are and or chronically ill and are seeking to learn more about grad school, sustainable productivity, and personal development. She is also the co-author of the forthcoming Grad School femtoring Guide, Successfully Navigating Graduate School Applications with the University of California Press. Um, and co-editor of the best-selling Chicana Mother Work anthology with the University of Arizona Press. So welcome, um, Yvette. Thank you
2: so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
3: Is it Dr. Yvette? Is it Yvette? How should we... Um,
2: Yvette or Doctora Yvette is uh, fine with me. Those are my two favorite ways to
3: to be referred to. Yeah. And I I just want to respect the fact that you have your PhD and want to acknowledge the fact that some people like to go by their first name or they're the, you know, doctora. So I guess I'll start with the the first question or comment. uh, The fact that we connected on through Instagram and through our common podcasts. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that happened?
2: Yeah, so I have the worst memory, and some of my closest friends make fun of me because they say, Yvette you never remember how you meet people. And that's sort of true. <laughs> so, like with us um meeting each other, I know that I reached out to you all because I was interested in having you as uh both of you as guests on my podcast. And I I knew that both of us have had a podcast around for around the same time we're in similar social media circles as chicanas as podcasters as folks uh, who are familiar and and exposed to higher ed and so I wanted to get that conversation started and y'all said yes I was really happy to hear from you and that there was that mutual um, excitement of collaborating together Uh, but yeah I feel like you know, we we've already recorded your episode. So if it comes out before this one, we can add the link to that episode on your show notes. But yeah, I'm just happy to be in a space with, you know, like minded folks and to share a little bit more about my story and why I do what I do and hopefully kind of uh, be part of your community and and keep doing the work the work that for all of us matters which is to keep supporting you know first gen bipoc students students who are children of immigrants uh students that are that are different that may be struggling but but they're not alone
3: yeah definitely and thank you for for sharing that I also have I don't have the greatest memory. So you did a great job. I was like, that's uh, what I can recall. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that, that, that was how it happened. Um, so yeah, so we, we read your bio, but is there anything else you would like to add about yourself before we dive into the next topic?
2: Yeah, so I I'm an academic coach, as it says on my bio, and I was having a coaching session with one of my clients and she's a Central American and is uh, really interested in the power of storytelling. That's part of her career. And we were having this conversation about how our bios are usually you know, relatively professional. We don't always share everything about ourselves, but learning storytelling is important and sharing things that are meaningful to you is important, even if it goes outside what's traditional, what's expected. So that's why I love um talking a little bit more about my background and backstory more than what is shared in a bio Um, and I like when I have my own guests to ask them about their background and backstory because you never know how you might relate to someone so for me uh, for instance I'm someone who I grew up with a single mom with six kids so I'm one of six Um, I lost my father when I was 12. He passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm. And so that was another thing that was really, really formative for me um, is dealing with childhood trauma and the grief of losing my father, being exposed to mental health services at a really young age. Um, I had a counselor who signed me up for grief grief counseling um, when I was really young. I was the only one out of my siblings who got that kind of support and it, it made a big difference. So That impacted me. Then going to grad school was also huge. I mean, I have a platform that's all about grad school because grad school was so formative in shaping me and who I am. And it was in grad school that I also developed a chronic illness. It was in grad school that I became a mama. It was in grad school that I learned that I was neurodivergent. And so all those things shape who I am, how I view myself, how I present myself to the world, and how I support others. So yeah, that's um a little bit about about me. (laughs) And now diving into again, thank you so
0: much for small window, a small snippet of everything that you've been through. um, And also highly recommend we'll also link your podcast in our show notes as well. um, Because your podcast has been such an important, you know, like I think in addition to all the other kind of social media platforms I had launched, I think around the 2019 era of like a lot more of us kind of creating content around specifically grad school, um, especially in the time where a lot of like other contents like Me Too or like all these other kind of like more like fun comedy like things that share part of our cultura and Um, on social media, um, but a lot of us kind of like saw the void of not enough spaces talking about specifically people of color, Chicanas, or any of the other identities we've kind of mentioned already going into grad school and discussing, you know, there's a large variety of, you know, you know, themes that largely haven't been covered in Our way or our process of navigating college, because even when we were starting to learn what grad school was all about, the platform and the process has changed a lot. And especially for us folks who are creating new pathways or new research, um, a lot of this has been kind of like building as we're going. And it has been really amazing that you've created a podcast dedicated to like really either walking students step-by-step on a particular topic or step of either the admissions retention piece of like how do you stay in a grad school program and also how do you finish and even more so like what do you do after graduating (laughs) so tell us i mean from picking up from our conversation that we had in our last podcast recording we wanted to talk about you know more in depth the process of like addressing or going through burnout and also um the concept you brought up for us Uh, off the record about arrival fallacy and how it shows up since you've completed grad school. So one, tell us, and could you please define this in case any of our listeners don't know what arrival fallacy is and expand on kind of the topic of burnout?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, So before I go into these terms and defining them and, and why it's important to familiarize ourselves with them, Um, I want to talk about my experience uh, dealing with burnout when I was a grad student. I experienced burnout, I think it started at the end of my second year, going into my third year of grad school. And at that point in um, my doctorate program, I was in a PhD program in theater and performance studies. First year was coursework, and it was just the big transition of trying to familiarize myself. And like what did I I get myself into? I don't know what I'm doing. I went straight out of undergrad. By my second year, I was um, more comfortable, um, had a better sense of where I was, but I was so concerned over doing well, over not disappointing others, over um, getting as much experience as possible that I had no boundaries. I struggled to say no. I experienced a lot of feelings of guilt. I didn't prioritize the relationships that mattered to me. So I put my social life and my personal life on hold. And (laughs) now I think to myself, if I knew what I know now about concepts like uh, personal development, about the psychology of happiness, about goal setting, about habit formation. These are things that I, I'm a big fan of. Like I, I, you know, a lot of what I do is has to do with teaching about sustainable productivity, teaching about personal development, and then teaching about how to navigate grad school. Um, if I knew these things, if I knew someone had introduced me to the concept of like how to live a values-aligned life, if someone Introduced me to the science of happiness uh, and how your relationships and nurturing them really matters. If someone taught me about how goals are not just goals, there are different types of goals. There are intrinsic goals that are your own goals. There are extrinsic goals that are more externally motivated, and which ones could be more helpful and lead to more happiness. If I if someone taught me just like how I can work and tune into the things that work for me, like um like how being neurodivergent, like things that come easy to other people didn't come easy to me, like reading, for instance. I didn't realize until near the end and even after grad school that I'm more of an um auditory learner. And so listening to audiobooks is much better for me than reading. Um, I also have like eye issues, <laughs> chronic dry eyes and other things. Um, But again, like I burned out to the point where I became chronically ill. I don't know a lot of people where that's happened. And um, I also had a child. I got pregnant and it was around the time I was I was still burnt out and I experienced pregnancy complications. And when I gave birth, I I nearly died. I, I mentioned this all the time, because it was a big, big deal. I hemorrhaged, I lost three liters of blood, I nearly died. And I experienced severe postpartum depression. So part of my neurodivergence is that I'm highly sensitive. And I also struggle and have for as long as I can remember with depression and anxiety. So I experienced postpartum depression. And I was not functional, I was the lowest that I've ever been in my life. And I don't wish that on anyone because it was really hard but i was privileged enough that i was a grad student had access to healthcare, care to uh, counseling services i was able to see a therapist a psychiatrist get on medication for the first time in my life and with that support i was able to get better and get out of that that fog um so that was my experience with burnout it took years Um, to get out of it, and I think that's why um, I want to talk about burnout and how it's not just fatigue. It's not just being tired. Sometimes people say they're burnt out, but I'm not sure if they really are burnt out or if they're just experiencing, like, a season where they're doing a little bit too much because burnout is, it's intense exhaustion that has been building up over at an extended period of time, and it's experiencing chronic stress. And it can take months, if not years, to overcome. And in my work, my hope is that I can teach strategies, whether it's the sustainable productivity stuff or personal development stuff, so that more 1st general BIPOC students reduce their likelihood of experiencing burnout. And if they do, then they have the tools to to get better, to um, reduce to reduce it or to overcome it eventually. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the burnout piece. And then I can talk a little bit about the arrival fallacy. And that's just something I learned recently that I thought, hmm, that would have been helpful to know in, in grad school too, um, because it's not 100% related to burnout, but it is related to things that get in the way of us Um, experiencing joy
3: I mean I can I can definitely say that I relate to your experience about being in a second year PhD program feeling like you got the hang of it but also feeling like you could be doing more I mean I can say I could be doing more as a student like even getting invited to take part in research right if I say no, am I missing out? If I say, oh my gosh, (laughs) am I overdoing it? And it, that's how it was last quarter. It was just like constant, like work. If it wasn't one, you know, one project, it was work. If it wasn't work, it was TAing. If it wasn't TAing, it was grading, you know, my plate was really full. And towards the end of the quarter, I just like prioritized my health. I would go on my walks because I'm like, if I don't go on my walks and get fresh air and some sunlight, I'm not going to be as productive as I could be if I just stayed and like spent this hour trying to do work, which I probably won't get as much done, you know? And, and I think to your point is like, yes, there's always something to do, but I, I'm, I'm taking that approach of like, prioritizing self-care, prioritizing joy, prioritizing like hanging out with friends. And even though that's time taking away from my academics or something that I could be writing, reading, researching, it's it's giving, it's filling my cup, right? So I could, yeah, everything you said up at the beginning, I could relate and definitely have yeah. experienced.
0: And I wanted to add like, it's it's kind of interesting how, uh, the the years leading up to grad school and then once you're in grad school, even your hobbies have to be some, somehow related to uh, productivity. Like you I, have uh, to like really uh, quantify, well, I can only do 20, like down to the science of like the seconds of like, you know, from the moment you wake up to the sleep, like even sleep is calculated within, you know, your, your agenda. And if your hobbies are not, you know, created to get you ahead or um, get you extra, accolades or you know whatever uh, within your field um, you either monetize it because you have to in order to survive the salary Mm -hmm. or the compensation package that you're getting um, in your grad school or PhD program and so I think like that I mean I only got to the level of master's and what I tell students is even if after you're done with grad school whatever level you end up finishing um, that productivity never ends once you start working, and you have your either your full first time job or you know you decide to go to the faculty academia, you know um, row or any other full time job. Like you still have this sense of like, well now my goalpost has changed from graduating to now you know receiving this level of tenure or this level of you know compensation or this rank within my organization. Um, and in my personal life, I started feeling the pressure of like family or friends of like, well, now that you're done with school, what are you going to do with your personal life? Are you going to, you know, buy a home? Are you going to own a new car? Like, I think you should upgrade X, Y, Z, you know, within your life now that you have earned money. So there's a lot of pressure coming from so many different places of what we need to do and how to use up our free time and product, like become productive, um, extremely to our detriment. And I've started seeing a lot of on social media. I wanted to bring up also, um, I've been watching a lot of content creators (laughs) who have then quit their full-time job or their profession after spending years, um, in school and within the first years of their profession have quit and decided to really discuss how, grad school had impacted to the point that now they're like, okay, now I'm processing the grief and the emotions of what overproductivity have been. And the fact that I haven't been able to confront feelings of whatever grad school and my timeline brought. And I can relate to this a lot because I'm like I used to use work as a crutch to not address a lot of the feelings and a lot of the conflict or something like that in either my personal academic or or professional, you know,
2: stuff that I was dealing with. I mean, that's the scary thing is that. Well, okay. So first of all, I just want to go back to you said I only just got my master's, and I was say I want to say let's take away the only because it's a huge feat that you got your master's. So you got your master's, <laughs> and that's that. Felicidades, you know. And the other thing is, it, it is um, scary to think that okay we have spaces that can be potentially toxic for us, can encourage us to overwork and overproduce and burn out. But then at the same time, if you quit and you don't work on the parts of you that have internalized this sense of of capitalism, of lack of worthiness, of feeling like you need to be busy and working all the time to uh, to be worth anything, um, then that's gonna follow you wherever you go. It'll follow you to your next job. It'll follow you in your personal life. It'll follow you if you move across to another <laughs> country. <laughs> so we we need to make time and space to work on our stuff. That's the personal development. That's why I'm like obsessed with that. I'm, like the whether it's going to therapy, working with the coach, uh, working on your own, you know, self reflection um, slowing down, taking breaks, all that's going to help you to confront the hard stuff that you're dealing with so that you don't keep doing those things over and over and over again. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've witnessed a lot of people, um, leave, you know, programs, leave their jobs and they're still feeling really unhappy. And so kind of like what's, what's going on with that. And so to tie it back, um, when we were speaking off the record, I mentioned that I had recently learned this concept called the arrival fallacy. And it's this idea that it's a false notion that once you arrive, once you have reached a goal or a milestone, or you've done that big thing, that at that point you're going to reach long lasting happiness. But that's not necessarily true. Instead, happiness is what you create in the moment. Like you, instead of putting your happiness on hold, happiness is something that you can focus on in your day-to-day life. And those milestones won't necessarily make you any happier. Maybe you want to, like like the, the milestones in grad school. Oh, once I get to grad school, I'm gonna be happy. Or once I pass my qualifying exams, once I get my PhD, once I get that tenure track job, once I become tenured, and then what happens? Post post uh, dissertation blues or depression, post blah, 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 you know, like, I've heard of so many tenured professors who reach tenure and, and are like, I don't even know what to do with my life anymore, because they've been working, working, working towards this thing that was going to change their life and make them happy, and then they arrive and they realize it's, it's all right, <laughs> you know? Or it's not what I expected, or you know, it's not as different as I thought. Or just it's it's you know a lot of feelings of disappointment, um, and sometimes the disappointment is because these have all been external goals, goals that have been placed on us. So that's why, like, I'm glad that I'm seeing more content creators that are talking about reframing, um, so like mindset stuff, so reframing how we define success, so that you would define it yourself. Um, reframing um, goal setting so that it's all about like you and the things that matter to you that are aligned with your values Um, and about prioritizing relationships too. Um, So for me, the things that I remember the most from grad school are the people that I met, are the um, groups that I was a part of, the collectives, the writing groups, all that. Those And those are the people that I'm still in touch with now. Those are the people that have changed my life It's not the, you know, fellowship that I got. It's not the, you know, whatever accolades that I got. Yeah, those are nice uh, to list on the CV, um, but it's the people that made a difference. So yeah, I wanted to introduce that concept of the arrival fallacy so that if someone thinks to themselves, oh my gosh, I do that. Like I keep, you know, working and then getting to that thing and then getting to the next thing and to the next thing and never truly enjoying the moment or not rewarding ourselves. Like reward is a huge thing for like helping to make us happy. And in fact, reward systems are great for like neurodiversion people in general. They're great for my son, they're great for me. Like having things to look forward to that helps to promote joy. And so I want to like embrace that and promote that a little bit more of like, you should be lauding yourself. Don't wait for someone else to do that. You um, should be rewarding yourself for the small and the big big milestones. How many folks, you know, reach like maybe they they graduate and then they don't really have a big celebration, or they reach a certain milestone and they're just going on to the next and to the next and to the next. Um, and I used to do that, but I don't. I I no longer want to keep doing that. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if this happens to
0: any of y'all, but I've, um, recently started reflecting on like how we celebrate things or how we deprive ourselves from joy. Um, because, you know, the example that I've always had with my parents would overwork themselves from like January up until like the holidays in December. And then until December, they started buying the stuff that they wanted, you know, getting to wear, you know, big fancy clothes or like the things that they like want to show off and use. They like wait until that time as opposed to like just randomly choosing times that like you're like, I don't need a reason to wear a nice dress or a nice clothes or buy myself, you know, a new set of whatever Like now is the time and now I want to use it and enjoy it and buy things with intentionality of saying it's not because of how it looks or how it does. Like it's what matters to me of how I -hmm. want to see things and what I find important in the item or the thing that you want to invest in. Right. So like, I've changed my mind of like, I'm not going to wait until my birthday to like use that really nice set of like plates, you know, like why not buy already the good plates that I want? Yeah. and consistently use them until, you know, you have to part ways. Cause it, it it's no longer, you know, realistic to continue using something that's Absolutely. not going to be useful anymore, but that has really changed. Like even the holidays for me now, like if I want to buy something or I want to give someone, some, something to someone, like I don't wait for an important date. I'm like, this is, sounds like a good weekend to, you know, do something fun, you know, and like not be so like, not have this, uh, such a scarcity mindset of finding joy within your day to day
2: I'm glad you mentioned the scarcity mindset, because I think that a lot of us struggle with that. And it's hard not to if you grow up in poverty or in a working class background, it's it's hard to to see outside of that when that's all you've been exposed to. Uh, But then that scarcity continues in spaces like higher ed, where there is scarcity. I mean, there aren't enough tenure track jobs and tenure lines are getting replaced by adjunct, contingent, low-waged professors. Um, So, uh, or there aren't enough, you know, spots for certain highly competitive fellowships, or um, there aren't enough spots for the program you're applying to. So, the the scarcity mindset continues. Uh, But then, once you've had exposure to growth mindset, once you've had exposure to an abundance mindset, you realize, like, it's not like this everywhere. And there are a lot more opportunities, and I don't have to settle for scarcity. And that's what I've learned in leaving my position um, because I was a higher ed professional. You know, I was in that space for over 10 years. And uh, then I realized I wanted more for my life. Um, yeah. And I've learned a lot since then um, about advocating for myself about, um, you know, expanding my opportunities about, um, you know, doing the best to to live a life in abundance based off what works well for you. So yeah, that scarcity mindset, it's, it's hard, it's hard not to revert back, I still struggle with it. Um, but I, I'm glad that I'm aware of it. And I hope that more and more people become aware of of, you know, the, the benefits of learning about how to develop a growth mindset and an abundance mindset. Cause the growth mindset too, like I used to be that kid that was afraid of failure, that I didn't want to try new things because I didn't want to be bad at it. And so I didn't try, I didn't try new things. I, you know, I, I to this day don't know how to ride a bicycle, <laughs> you know? So it's like, um, I limited myself and my, Um, and the opportunities um, that I had uh, because of that fear of failure. And it was because I I didn't know that it was okay to fail, that it was okay to keep trying and that you learn and get better over time. Yeah.
0: And I hope that people like end up, you know, spending, I think that was changed just when I went to grad school, I had seen and heard all these stories, like the horror stories of like, I've had a really toxic environment in my grad program. I've had a very difficult like very traumatic experiences in grad school. And to some extent, like whether there's a gravity or the you know the scale of how you know negatively you know grad school will impact you. and it does impact all of us negatively in one shape or form, but we don't spend enough time kind of grieving and decompressing what that life experience has done for us. because there's so much feelings that happen afterwards. And what I encourage students to do is like, don't, you know, think it's your fault that things didn't work out for, especially for folks who are now really assessing and thinking about transitioning out of, you know, what they thought, you know, they were going to do in grad school or in their now in their full-time job or profession. Um, it's not our fault that our hopes and dreams, which are, Oftentimes I hear students have like very honorable, very amazing goals. And I'm like, yes, we need more people to think like that. However, we have to also confront the structure of all these places because they're not designed to create empathy, to create a space for really real community and Um, accountability. Um, Oftentimes we go from one toxic place structure to a different one who is just there to design to take the most out of you without really feeding back to you. Um, And it's unfortunate because like the HR process, the structural policies, the work environment, all of this is like contributing to this feeling of like you feeling like you're having a hard time defining where things are going wrong. Because you're like, am I the wrong? Who's the wrong? Is the work environment, is my supervisor, is my job or my training?
2: Like, where you, it's hard to identify where things went wrong. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I like to remind students if they're struggling in a program, you know, and they are first gen or, you know, marginalized in some way, shape, or form, you know, part of uh, multiple oppressed identities, um, is that like you said, these spaces were not built for us. Um, There's a reason why they're experiencing a lack of belonging and that, unfortunately, um, they're not seeing the assets that we bring to the table. So if you are first gen, like you're a trailblazer, you have so many skills. Um, Depending on what cultural background you come from, like you've got a wealth of Of cultural wealth, or you have cultural access to cultural wealth, you have community, um, you have strong ties to individuals who are willing to help you out. Um, And that's the thing, you know, these uh, a lot of programs do not focus on the changing the culture. Maybe they might, there might even be policies that are welcoming, that maybe they might be changing the policies, but if the culture doesn't change, then folks are not going to access the you know the resources based on the policies because it's not going to be encouraged. And so it's not you it's not personal like you said and um and the sooner you start to realize what your gifts are what your talents are what your talents or what your assets are what you bring to the table the sooner you can you know get redirected or walk away or turn towards the thing and the space and the people that do value you. Um, And so many of us have things that have, you know, about us that others have made us to feel different or wrong or deficit, but they're not. Um, So yeah, that's kind of what I like to remind people is to like embrace the things that make them them. The things that you're struggling with the most hopefully at one point you you reach a, a level where you can lean into that. So one example is like, I have struggled with my chronic illness and struggled with the fact that I work differently, that I'm always very, very sick in the mornings and wanting to be a morning person because I once was a morning person and just struggling, struggling, struggling. And it wasn't until I leaned into having slower mornings, uh, requesting workplace accommodations, going to my doctor, getting paperwork, going to HR, um, and having the supports to work with my struggle, the things that I felt were were deficits that then I was able to uh, do a lot better and, and to this day I feel like I'm it's I'm thriving to an extent. <laughs> And I'm, I've experienced the most joy that I have. I mean, at one point in grad school, I don't think I even knew what, what made me happy. Like, I was that down. Um, and again, that's not to say my life is easier, My that every moment is happy and joyful. No, I mean, that's not realistic. That's not, that wouldn't be accurate. Um, life is full of ups and downs but at least I'm aware, at least I am confident, at least I know, you know, my value, my worth. And that's what I want students to, to get to, to that, that space where they're so self-aware that they can be confident and they can know what they bring and they can not settle for less. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And with that awareness, what you what you were saying reminded me of was like even taking breaks between undergrad and grad school is okay like we don't have to go straight from high school to college to a grad school program because that in itself is burnout like you don't ever get a break and although it might work for some to do that right away that's great but what I like to remind people or like my peers that have done that I'm like that are considering taking a break in between like even though now they're in a PhD program I'm like take that break take that one year break if that's what you feel you're needing like if that's what your body if your mind do that self-care you're not falling behind like don't see it to your point as a deficit it's like do what you need take that break and then come back like I told him like my I, I, I told my friend I'm like I took what was supposed to be a one-year break became seven years, right? Before I even like decided to like go back to school. But those seven years I traveled, you know, I worked, uh, I saved money, I hung out with my friends, you know, like I did all these things that I took out of my system. So now that I'm like in a grad school program and a PhD program, I'm not missing, I'm not feeling like Oh, I wish I could be traveling or I wish I could be doing XYZ, right? Like I I feel like, okay, been there, done that. I know what that's like. I'm I I, you know, I would rather be doing that. But no, I'm it helped me kind of center myself and ground myself for like the commitment of a five-year program.
0: And you bring up a really good point, Ariana, about this, like because we deprive ourselves of what we want, there's so much regret what that people talk about of like, oh, I wish I would have done this and this. And, you know, I never made an opportunity to do this because we're so like hyper-focused on meeting this one particular goal that we don't give ourselves grace of like, you know, you can extend it. And that's part of, again, the scarcity mindset of like, I can only do this at this particular time in this way. And we're very like strict on ourselves and don't allow us to fail, do something different, take our time. And there's some things that, you know, are important to know. Of course, we have a limited timeline. There could be very restrictive financial aid policies. There's like a lot of like definitely structural things that won't allow you to do things um, at a particular time. But if when we do have an opportunity to grace ourselves, like we don't take it, we think that this is going to be like a detriment and um, a waste of time when I'm like, by the time that you're done with your life, uh, you reflect back and you're like, I didn't find any meaning into it. Um, I was so set on checklists that I forgot to really just experience life for itself. Um, because if you really think about it, life is very, very short <laughs> and we only get to live that one time once, like, you know, you can't relive your 22 or, you know, your 30 of your academic journey. Um, But you at least if it's going to be and you know it's going to be a tough experience uh, for yourself, you might as well make it enjoyable and make it in your own terms.
2: I am um, a huge fan of taking breaks, of taking leaves, of taking time off. Um, And I did have the same thoughts of of, if I don't do it now, then that opportunity is going to be gone or missed. And also of. You know, focusing so much on external or extrinsic goals that then I missed out on the things that I wanted to do, like um, getting involved. I was I was very involved in theater work and like theater practice and acting, uh, stage managing when I was in college. And I stopped doing that. I also, you know, I wanted to study abroad in in college, and I didn't because I thought well, I have to finish in four years, and. I was so again so afraid of failing. Failing was like the end of the world. <laughs> I was a straight A student growing up, and if I got anything other than an A, I would get my ass whooped. I'm um, sorry, I just said the bad word. I wasn't sure. I'm like, uh, but yeah, so that was that was how I was taught. I was taught like you don't you don't do anything less than an A. Gotta do straight. If if anything goes wrong, then your life is over. <laughs> And it took so long to unlearn that uh, that it's okay to not do things perfectly. Uh, so unlearn. I'm a recovering perfectionist, and I see that in a lot of people that I work with. They're recovering perfectionists. They they struggle with wanting to do things right, wanting to do things right the first time. They uh, sometimes they're so overworked that. They're, and they're still unwilling to do good enough work. I'm like, what would be good enough? Like based off your energy levels right now, what would be good enough where it's acceptable work and maybe it's not stellar, but it's still enough. Um, and yeah, and then we become high achievers, overachievers, and we end up getting drawn to higher ed. <laughs> because in, in higher ed, the work never ends unless you set boundaries, no one is going to be counting your hours and saying, oh, you reached 40 hours, you got to stop. No, it just keeps going and going and going. And the more you work, uh, the more laud or the more compliments, the more, you know, um, it's it's like a, a culture of like that badge of honor of being busy. And um, when you say that you're doing less uh, or when people choose to do less or take time, they associate themselves with laziness when in actuality you're just honoring your body. (laughs) So yes, let's definitely uh, promote more um, taking time off, taking breaks, uh, going on leaves. There are workarounds. Um, I've worked with folks who have taken leaves from their doctoral programs. It is possible, um, and, and even taking breaks setting those boundaries, you, you know, you don't have to overshare, you don't have to tell people what you're doing, um, they don't have to know when, when you're on a break, um, unless they're a safe person to share that with, because I know when I share, and if it's in a safe space, then I'm, I know that I'm promoting that um, to others, that I'm modeling that for others, so it's okay to take a break, or it's okay to, to do less, you know, we all have seasons, we have seasons where we do more, we do less, And that to me is healthy, not continuously and always doing more, 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 more. And then to the point of burnout or illness or worse, yeah.
3: I saw a meme just to, you know, conclude this conversation, but it was by PhD help on Instagram that said, I didn't want a nine to five job. So I decided to do a PhD. (laughs) (laughs) Now I work 24 seven. (laughs)
2: or like they say you work like I don't want to work nine to five um so instead uh you know I don't have to work nine to five I get to choose the 24 hours or however many hours of the day that I get to work uh but it's true I mean I, I think last I read the average academic works 60 70 hours a week and I'm like I don't even know where I could find that many hours <laughs> but I believe it because I believe that at one point I probably did work that much yeah
3: so now transition to uh, to our grad school femtering and grad school just generally speaking um we both launched our podcast in the same year 29 was it 2019 Patricia right
2: yeah Time flies.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Um, and we were excited to see more Latina grad school content coming up on social media. How have you seen the landscape change for potential and current grad students?
2: Yeah, well, um, the landscape has changed a lot since I was a grad student. I, I started, um, I worked I, like my, my early exposure to social media and pod- podcasting was through a collective that I co-founded called Chicana Mother Work. And back then, we got together in 2014. I had my son in 2013, so it was 2014. We, I mean, Instagram wasn't big. It was hard to find like-minded folks. It was hard to find, for instance, for me, other Chicana mamas, doctoral students, and um, so it was hard to build community because we we couldn't find each other. But over time, I mean, I started this po- the podcast grad school film touring in 2019. Even then, I didn't see as many. The like, podcasting was becoming bigger, but I didn't see as many like diverse podcasts and podcasters. And I mean, just more recently, I feel like the world of social media, content creators, um, podcasters who are of different diverse backgrounds who are first-gen, who are BIPOC, who are disabled, who are neurodivergent, who are queer, who are undocumented, you name it, it's exploded. It's, it's it's And I see that as a great thing, especially if you're using social media and these platforms intentionally in a way where you're trying to meet new people, build community, learn from each other. It's, I, I feel like sometimes I tell people, I'm like, I think I'm learning more <laughs> from social media and podcasts than I like learned in grad school. <laughs> I mean I learned a lot in grad school, but I've learned a ton. And you know, you know, you can't trust everything that you you know, read or, or listen to online. Uh, but there are a lot of folks that I value their knowledge and respect them. And, and I know that I can trust, you know, what they're sharing. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been great to see. I've, I've met so many incredible people, including you mujeres, um, who I'm like, dang, like, I would have never met y'all if it wasn't for this. So I'm, I'm, I'm eternally grateful. I'm glad that I put myself out there uh, as an introverted (laughs) person who struggles to network um I struggle a little less now uh, but I hope that it encourages other people to put themselves out there more and again like I said using social media intentionally because on the other side of things we know that the other side of the coin with social media is that it could increase you know comparison traps it could increase the sense of isolation um it can uh, negatively impact people's mental health if if you're on it too much. Um, So I I try to be careful and and use it mindfully um, in a way that makes me feel good.
0: The other challenge of social media, and I think that also the benefit is like, once you you tap into the niche, I've definitely enjoyed learning in, with like so many like different variety of educators who like talk about like really interesting things that like either are just like learning educational ones or just like historical ones or things that are just like fun productive or like little things that I'm like oh I didn't know how that was used I've been using that wrong like I don't know if it's happened to yeah. y'all but like there's like life hacks of like how to you know do adulting because again if you actually think about it, we didn't really get a good introduction on how to navigate this world. And it's been really awesome to hear everyone around the world, you know, talk about how life is so different, um, and the kind of possibilities and imagination that other countries have done things that I'm like, Hey, you know, that would have been good to, you know, have as a resource or kind of just something for fun that we have, you know, um, But now going on to like our last topic, um, because we've seen so many, uh, you know, possibilities, options for folks, um, we have seen a bigger exodus of higher ed professionals. um, And this is including both on the faculty side and the staff side, um, leaving or wanting to leave working in this field. Um, And we're all talking about kind of like the running themes about, you know, the expats of higher ed and why so many higher ed employees are leaving. Um, you've you know put together a short list, but can you t- ex- you know speak on this topic, and especially when you're working with your clients, has this come up often for you? Um, I'm assuming probably in your podcast and also probably in your clients.
2: Yeah. Um. So I, I actually recorded an episode on this topic that hasn't been released yet. Uh, and it's, it's going to be episode 176. Um, so it, it's all about expats of higher ed and why so many higher ed um, employees are leaving. And there are a lot of parallels with the reasons why a lot of higher ed uh, employees, staff members um, are leaving um, with uh, teachers and folks working in the t- K through 12 system. And so with some of my clients it has come up with folks considering leaving their graduate programs with folks considering transferring programs um, leaving their jobs applying to different jobs within higher ed outside of higher ed and some of the, the the themes in terms of reasons why they're leaving is a lot of what we talked about earlier in, in our conversation about the culture of overwork um about uh, lack of flexibility, um, about um, burnout. We've, we've spent a lot of time talking about burnout, but then and the toxic, it's not toxic everywhere, but there are toxic departments and workplaces. Um, but then more so than that, also this is it kind of ties in with the teachers as well, that a lot of higher ed professionals are underpaid they're underpaid compared to perhaps other individuals with similar um, with similar roles in that same institution, across other institutions and across other similar industries. Um, I mean, I've mentioned this in my podcast and it's taken me time to like grieve and accept it. But in my one of my former positions, I found out after the fact that I was getting paid $30,000 less than my predecessor for the same role. And I had higher credentials. And I, I didn't negotiate that position because I didn't know how to, um, because I was made to feel like I should be grateful for that position. And so the low pay is a big one. When when folks all of a sudden are realizing, wait, I can make two times or more than what I make now for a similar job outside of higher ed. Or also, like especially for Staff members, a lot of staff members are treated as second class citizens compared to professors, especially tenured professors. I've experienced it. I've witnessed it firsthand. And it's really unfortunate because staff members are the ones keeping the campus running and they can make or break experiences for students. And so we need to value them as much as we value faculty and administrators on campuses um, a big one is little room for advancement. So many folks in higher ed get stuck in mid-level positions and don't have any room to move up. That's like the highest that they can reach. I also, I also got to that point, uh, which is one of the reasons why I left my former position. I, it, there was not a lot of room for growth. Um lack of transparency so pay transparency you're applying for jobs you don't know how much you're gonna make and then you get to the interview stage or, and get the offer and you find out you're gonna make 30k or you know um poverty a poverty line uh, hourly wage or salary um yeah so being undervalued being underpaid um the scarcity mindset that we talked about like folks making you feel like, feel guilty for wanting more, for wanting to grow, for wanting to advance. Um, and then more recently because of 2020, a lot of folks stayed home, had some time to re reconnect and reassess um, their lives. We had the, the mass exodus or the, uh, what do people call it? The um, great resignation. <laughs> and so now, Not only are we facing all the other things that have been happening with higher ed employees, but there's also staff shortages. And so folks are having to do the job of multiple people while they're trying to fill these staff shortages or sometimes these staff shortages, these positions are not replaced um, because of budget cuts. Uh, So yes, shortages, more workload, less pay. Um, A lot of these things lead to folks realizing like, there's got to be something better than this. And again, I don't want to make it seem like this is the case in every single position. These are just trends. There are still some great positions. There are still some healthy workplaces. There are still amazing, incredible people, people that I know personally who are working and making a difference. Um, But if you find yourself noticing some of these things, it's completely okay to get out.
3: Yeah, definitely. I saw those I saw those trends when I was working <laughs> in higher ed. And, and even now, like I recently sent an email to someone about uh, a travel reimbursement and I got an automatic reply saying, I am sad to share, I'm no longer working at UC Riverside. And this person got hired over the summer and I'm like, oh crap, what happened? <laughs> You know, like students are the direct, you know, um, they're directly affected by this. And I'm like, who do I contact? Um,
0: And the fact that there's like no um, uh announcement or like students are like the last ones to hear that, you know, there's this been this, there's this change. And I mean, in California, especially in the California university system, since that's the system I work in and even the UCs right now, like there's like the strikes that have happened and yeah. so much like pushback and like, like very bad bargaining, you know, um, what is it called in, bath, in bad faith, bargaining, you know, situations, not just like in higher ed, but in like in other industries as well, like where we have a lot of um working class folks um, trying to get more rights and more uh, benefits and pay for their employers uh, from their employers. It's just like, unless higher ed confronts and faces this real big issue, you're going to not have employees who are well-versed in knowing how to serve students. I mean, you can get any employees, but I don't think you can get the level of service and supposedly outcomes that they're looking for. Yeah. Quality employees, quality results um, for them, for anybody in here. And you're going to come to face it. And I think I don't like how comfortable some of these systems feel like, because especially for like, let's say a four-year institution that's a public one, they can say, well, we're just going to get the students, who you know, get disqualified from this other system, or we're just going to get our transfer students numbers up, or we're going to look for a study abroad. Like they're always looking to replace them, but never solve the issue that, you know, initiated or is the root cause of why you know, people are dissatisfied either working, paying, or being
2: there in general? I mean, there are a lot of um, issues with long-term sustainability uh, for institutions of higher ed, because they are businesses, whether we want to admit it or not, and they run based off Uh, donations, for instance, uh, among other funding sources. And we know that public education is underfunded federally. Um, And so a lot of institutions are, are working with the fact that they are facing more budget cuts and then folks are pushing back, understandably so, because they cannot make ends meet with the terrible stipends that they're getting, with the cents that they're getting, and then the you know their band-aid solutions are more low-wage employees, more adjunct professors, more uh, graduate students teaching, uh, more uh, low-wage staff members. And like you said, that that diminishes the quality. So then Long term, like I feel like you're starting to see this now. Folks are not 100 trusting that they're going to get a quality education, and so a lot of folks are not going to college anymore. They're saying, "Why am I going to go to college if I can learn that and more online for free?" And that's the scary thing. That what what is there to do about it? I I don't know. I mean, I, I have my my thoughts and, and things that I, I share on my podcast when I talk about the this trend of expats of higher ed about what managers can do to retain their employees. Um, but there's only so much that managers can do. There's there's stuff that's like high, high that only admins can do in terms of rethinking, in terms of, um, I don't know, getting angel investors or something, bringing in some more DEI talent and dismantling the whole thing <laughs> to rebuild it. But that's in an ideal world. I don't know. I don't know um, what's going to happen. I think we just do what we can with the you know agency that we have with control, with the spaces that we can make a difference in, e, you know, and hope for the best.
3: Definitely. And just to, um, just to close, um, with regards to your podcast, uh, or just your future projects, what are you hoping to accomplish this year? I know we talked about accomplishments, but what are your, what are the plans? What are your, what are you working on?
2: Yeah. So I, um, Finishing up, or I hope to be finishing up, um, we have a draft of a book. Uh, my co-author and I, Dr. Miroslava Chavez Garcia, have worked on a book called The Grad School Femme Guide. Um, successfully Guide, Successfully Navigating Grad School Applications. And it's all about demystifying the grad school application process for first-gen, uh, low-income Uh, non-traditional students of color, uh, BIPOC students. And we will have that book released next year. So right now we're waiting on reviewer feedback and then we're going to be working on revisions. It'll come out next year. We intend to have a book tour. So that's uh, in store for me is is I'm excited to have a book tour. Um, I hope to continue growing the podcast. It's, It's a labor of love. I love it so much. I'm not getting paid for it. Um, or if I do it sense <laughs> it sense from like a sponsored ad, <laughs> um, but I love it. And so I hope to grow the podcast, um, and to keep meeting amazing people, keep interviewing more, you know, wonderful guests and, and to do more, more speaking engagements. So virtual in-person, uh, Long term, I don't plan to stop writing books. I want to write more books. I, I have this idea of like, I'm going to write a book on, on product, on like sustainable productivity and personal development at, that has like a touring social justice, intersectional feminist lens. Because all of these books that I'm reading, I'm like, it's all straight, cis, white, able-bodied men and I'm tired of that I'm like where are my BIPOC folks you know where are all my like my disabled my neurodivergent my queer my all the the different you know I did I want more you know just different different authors folks who can give a different perspective who can say you know we're not all doing it the same way (laughs) and we don't all have to do it the same way so um, that's hopefully like a long, long-term goal. And, and then I, I, another dream of mine is to be a children's book author. I am a homeschooling mama. I um, you know, the work that I do with Chicana Mother Work is still like a uh, labor of love también. And I believe in introducing social justice concepts to our kids as as young as when they're babies. And so it's my my dream to to write children's books and to have my my kids be their own authors and write their own stories so yeah those are like long long long-term goals
3: (laughs) but it's good to dream right (laughs) it's amazing those are great goals I think it's putting it out into the universe and yeah you you know and and whoever's listening can reach out to you how can oh my gosh (laughs) be like hey a publisher hey whoever's listening
0: I'm I'm I would be happy to include like all of your books to help students like really because I think there's so few people who really make realistic and accessible information that you know speaks to their reality Um, especially when you're talking about productivity or happiness it's you know very much in a way of like you should be having 100k minimum of resources um, to at your disposal. And that's not the reality of a lot of people yeah. and further perpetuates this idea of like, unless you have these things and you can't be X, Y, Z, and it's not true. There is lots and lots of challenges for folks who are extremely in the margins, but it's not that it's impossible, especially for things that like, you know, care yes. where you can get accessible, you know, medical mental health or any of this stuff, like none of this should be get kept um, or uh, you know behind a paywall that's so out of reach for people yeah
2: yeah so I'm on a bunch of different social media platforms under um, at grad school femtoring and that's femtor f-e-m-t-o-r so femtoring Uh, My website is gradschoolfemtoring.com. So that's where you can find all the things, um, you know, more on my services, more about my podcast. Um, Yeah. So on Instagram, I'm most active on Instagram and after that LinkedIn. So if you are on LinkedIn, just look me up by my name, Yvette Martinez Vu. And if you're on Instagram, gradschoolfemtoring. I love to hang out in those two spaces. And yes, please, please try not to be so shy. I'm, 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 I'm known to, I I used to be very, very shy and not reach out and not, you know, tell people, you know, if they made a difference, I I would be too shy to tell them, or if I wanted to meet them, I thought, well, who am I to try to reach out? So if you're feeling that way, don't hesitate to reach out. I love, um, I really enjoy hearing from folks and meeting people and having conversations. Yeah. So I look forward to connecting with some of your
3: audience. Well, thank you so much for for joining us today and for sharing some time with our audience, some knowledge, some resources, uh, great topics that we don't often cover in higher education. So I'm really glad that you brought those concepts to our listeners. And we hope that we can stay in touch and collaborate on future projects. Yes,
2: thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: For this
0: episode, our BIPOC business shout-out goes to Woofboard. Like so many others, my household welcomed pet companions during the pandemic. And in true millennial fashion, I wanted to make sure my pets were provided with great gear, treats, and toys. This is how I came across this Bay Area small business called Woofboard. Woofboard curates really cute collections and supports a lot of BIPOC pet business owners. You can visit their storefront in San Jose, California or order online. Make sure to grab a barcourie board or treat your dog to a new toy. As always, the link to their website will be in the show notes.
1: For all of our listeners, you can email us at chicanacodeswitchers at gmail.com and send us your POC business conference and event shoutouts and listener letters. You could also record a listener message on Anchor app and that way we can include your recorded message in our future episodes. Follow us on Instagram at Chicana Code Switchers and on Twitter at X Code Switchers. If you would like to support this podcast, you can Venmo or Cash App us at Chicana Code Switchers and or become a Patreon contributor. Thank you, and don't forget, switch the code. Don't let the code switch you.